For most of its history, the United States has rarely been militarily threatened on the home front. The nation is surrounded to the east and west by vast oceans, and to the north and south by Mexico and Canada, two friendly and militarily weak nations. Before the US was the military superpower it was today, it did see occasional conflict on its soil. The American Revolution was fought primarily in the nation it gained independence for. The War of 1812 saw most of Washington, D.C. burned to the ground. The Texan War and Mexican-American War riddled the southwestern U.S. with conflict for over a decade, and the Civil War happened entirely within the country's borders. With exceptions, virtually every war since then has taken place outside of the United States. Fewer people are concerned about Red Dawn coming true than are simply concerned about it being a terrible movie. Most Americans see World War II as the last good war. The Korean War has been widely forgotten. The Vietnam War remains one of the most controversial conflicts in history. And today, nobody can even identify the countries America is fighting in on a map. World War II, meanwhile, saw the courageous defeat of Nazism in Europe and Japanese imperialism in the Pacific. It cemented the U.S. as a global superpower and a force for good in the world. This was all despite the fact that the war took place mostly away from North America. However, this is not entirely true. In fact, there was a time when a significant portion of a U.S. state was invaded and occupied by the Japanese during World War II. I'm going to tell you all about it, right now on Historia Obscura. Welcome to Historia Obscura. This is the fourth episode of this podcast, and I can't believe you're still here. Give yourself a pat on the back. I can't wait for you to hear what I have in store this week, so get ready for a great episode. Don't worry, I won't forget to subtly mention New Jersey, as always. One more thing, make sure to stick around for a little to hear a message about the sponsor of this episode of Historia Obscura, Anchor. If you want to make your own podcast, you'll want to know everything about how to use Anchor. There were several instances in which World War II bled into U.S. territory. By far, the most famous of these was the attack on Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. On December 7, 1941, Japanese planes killed 2,335 American servicemen and 68 civilians. Thousands more were wounded. The attack prompted the United States to declare war on Japan, thereby entering World War II. However, there were a few other incidents of note. The Japanese launched several Fugo fire balloons in 1944 in the hopes of hitting the U.S. and exploding. There was only one lethal attack from these balloons when one landed in an Oregon public park and exploded, killing a teacher and five of her students. Another balloon made it all the way to Nebraska, where it landed but did not explode. 
Today, it's located in the Durham Museum, a history museum in Omaha. The Japanese also bombarded the city of Santa Barbara, California on February 23, 1942. However, there were no deaths or serious injuries recorded. In September of that year, Japan also conducted the infamous Lookout Air Raids, which involved incendiary bombing the mountains of Oregon in a failed attempt to ignite forest fires. There was, however, one whole military campaign that took place elsewhere. It was not the crucial Guadalcanal campaign or the Battle of Midway, which both turned the tide in the Pacific theater, giving the U.S. an upper hand. It instead occurred within the continental U.S. in the state of Alaska. Seeing that Midway was nearly a lost cause, Japanese naval commander Isoroku Yamamoto came up with a plan to distract the Americans from the battle. In the early morning of June 4, 1942, bombs began raining down on the U.S. naval base in Dutch Harbor on a Mackinac Island, Alaska. The bombing killed 43 Americans and wounded 50 more. It was a shocking tragedy for the United States, but it would not be the end of trouble in the region. Two days later, the Japanese invaded and occupied Kiska Island, Alaska. There were no civilians living on the island, Rather, there was a weather station, staffed by 10 U.S. Navy servicemen. The Japanese stormed the base and killed two servicemen, while their commanding officer, William House, escaped. The remaining seven were captured and shipped to POW camps in Japan. A massive search began for Officer House, and after 50 days in the Alaskan wilderness, he surrendered to the Japanese. By then, he reportedly only weighed 80 pounds. The Japanese did not stop there. The day after the invasion of Kiska Island, they subsequently landed on Atu Island, 180 miles to the west. Unlike Kiska, this island was populated entirely by civilians. On Atu Island lived 45 Aleut natives and two white Americans. These two were Charles Jones, an amateur radio operator from St. Paris, Ohio, and his wife, Etta, a teacher from Vineland, New Jersey. Both were 60 years old. On June 7th, as many of Atu's Aleut residents were returning home from Sunday church services, the Japanese stormed the island. The churchgoers were rounded up and their houses were searched. Meanwhile, Charles Jones sat inside his radio tower, sending a weather report to Dutch Harbor. After hearing gunfire from the attack, Jones said, The Japs are here, and destroyed the radio. This was the last anyone heard of him. The Japanese entered the radio station and interrogated Jones for hours, suspecting that he was spying for the Soviets. Eventually, they asked him to repair the now-destroyed radio. Jones refused. His captured wife was brought to the radio tower. She was forced to watch as her husband was beheaded by Japanese soldiers. She was then sent to the Bund Hotel in occupied Shanghai, where she lived with captive Australian and Dutch-Indonesian nurses until the end of the war. As for the 45 indigenous residents of the island, 
they were originally allowed to return to their homes, but in September of 1942, they were transported to POW camps in Hokkaido, Japan. Sixteen of them would die there before the war ended. The occupation of Kiska and Atu was a national embarrassment. Many people feared that the Aleutian Islands could be used as a base for submarine warfare against the West Coast. The coastal cities of Anchorage, Seattle, and San Francisco would all be at risk. Admiral Chester Nimitz began planning a counterattack to liberate the islands. Propaganda posters were scattered around mainland Alaska, referring to the state as the Death Trap for the Jap. In response to the captivity of Attu residents, the U.S. government began forcibly evacuating natives from other Aleutian islands. Thousands of Aleut civilians were placed in internment camps in Ketchikan and Sitka against their will. The U.S. Navy took decisive action on July 5, 1942, when the submarine USS Growler attacked three Japanese ships off of Kiska Island, sinking one and severely damaging the other two. But the islands remained under Japanese control, and it would not be until the next year that the counterattack took place. On March 27, 1943, the USS Salt Lake City was patrolling near the Soviet-controlled Komandorsky Islands when two Japanese cruisers approached. The Salt Lake City was able to damage both cruisers, but seven American sailors were killed. Two months later, Operation Land Crab commenced. Atu Island was going to be liberated. On May 11, 1943, the 7th Infantry Division, backed by Canadian air support, landed in Massacre Bay on the southeast end of Atu Island. Within a week, the Japanese forces were pushed back into Chickagoff Harbor, the Japanese Navy hurried to send a fleet of ships for backup, but it was too late. On May 29, 1943, Colonel Yasuyo Yamasaki led his men in a final bonsai charge. Almost 3,000 of them were killed or committed suicide. Only 28 prisoners were taken after the Battle of Atu. Meanwhile, 500 American and Canadian soldiers were killed, either by the Japanese forces or by frostbite and disease. Three months later, the Allies doubled down on the Aleutian campaign. Operation Cottage would be executed, and Kiska Island would be retaken from the Japanese. The Aleutian Island campaign would be finished, and the Japanese military would be out of North America. On August 15, 1943, the 7th U.S. Infantry Division landed on the south shore of Kiska Island, while the 13th Canadian Infantry Brigade landed on the north shore. They expected a Japanese fighting force just as strong as on Atu. However, this was not the case. In fact, the opposite was true. There was not one Japanese soldier on Kiska Island. Under the command of Kiichiro Higuchi, the occupying Japanese had been evacuated from the island following the bloodbath at the Battle of Atu. 
but before they left the island, they covered it entirely with mines and tripwires. The plan was for the American troops and Canadian troops to rendezvous in the center of the island by the late afternoon. However, both sides were delayed by the countless booby traps left by the Japanese, as well as by an accidental jeep crash that killed several American soldiers. By the time the two exhausted brigades met, it was pitch black on the island. Because of this, a Canadian soldier mistook a line of American soldiers as Japanese and fired on them. This led to a sporadic friendly fire incident that eventually led to the deaths of 28 Americans and 4 Canadians. In addition, the USS Abner Reed, a destroyer stationed off the coast of Kiska Island, hit a Japanese mine, which killed 71 sailors on board. By the time the island was secured, 105 American and Canadian soldiers were dead, but for the first time in over a year, the brutal Japanese occupation of the Aleutian Islands was finished. In 1988, Congress passed the Aleut Restitution Act, giving reparations to the Aleut natives who were interned during the campaign. Meanwhile, the Battle of Atu Island remains the only land battle of World War II fought on U.S. soil. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Historia Obscura. This was definitely one of my favorite topics so far, and I hope you all enjoyed it as much as I did. If you want to suggest an episode of Historia Obscura, send me a voice message at anchor.fm slash historiaobscura slash message. Feel free to leave your name and location, and if I like your idea, I'll make an episode of it and give you credit. And of course, I can't go without once again thanking this episode's sponsor, Anchor. They are by far the easiest way to make a podcast, so if you want to make your own, go to anchor.fm. With that said, this is Jack from Historia Obscura, signing off, but not for long.